I thank God for all who have led us in worship today and for the opportunity to continue a sermon series entitled Galatians Afresh. We are seeking to take a fresh look at Paul's ancient epistle to the Galatians. And today I want to draw your attention to Galatians 6. I will read verses 7 through 10 from the New Revised Standard Version. And the title of the sermon is Harvest Time is Coming. Paul writes, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for you reap whatever you sow. If you sow to your own flesh, you will reap corruption from the flesh. But if you sow to the Spirit, you will reap eternal life from the Spirit. So let us not grow weary in doing what is right, for we will reap at harvest time if we do not give up. So then, whenever we have an opportunity, let us work for the good of all, and especially for those of the family of faith. Let us pray. Lord God, in this preaching moment, I simply ask that you would help me to speak your word. Help them to hear your word. And Lord, help us all to do your word. I pray in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Harvest time is coming. I don't know when, and I don't know how exactly, but harvest time is coming. There is a time for sowing, there is a time for working, and finally there is a time for reaping because harvest time is coming. Just as farmers expect it in the annual cycle of nature, Christians expect it at the conclusion of all things. Harvest time is coming. In Galatians 6, the Apostle Paul cites a widely known ancient proverb called the law of equal harvest. It goes like this. Whatever you sow is what you will reap. This is a reliable rule of nature. You don't sow cotton and reap barley. You don't sow buckwheat and reap beans. You don't sow corn and reap potatoes. You don't sow cucumbers and reap tomatoes. You reap what you sow. <laughs> the point is self-evident in its agricultural reference, and it constitutes an irrefutable theological maxim as well. Actions have consequences. This is true in daily life in terms of cause and effect, and it's true in terms of divine judgment at the end of time. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 that we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ and he will repay each of us according to the deeds we have done, whether good or evil. 
neither Paul's doctrine of justification by faith nor his theology of salvation by God's grace canceled his conviction that Christ will judge us on the basis of our deeds and will repay us accordingly. Somehow it all goes together. We will reap on judgment day whatever we have sown in the meanwhile. Harvest time is coming. Divine judgment is not instantaneous, but it is inevitable. The 20th century pastor George Buttrick said, God doesn't balance his books every year. Indeed, but God will balance them in the end. We cannot ignore God in perpetuity, nor can we scorn God without accountability. There will be a day of judgment, say the Psalms. There will be a day of judgment, say the prophets. There will be a day of judgment, say the teachings of Christ. There will be a day of judgment, say the letters of Paul. A harvest time is coming. We will all stand face to face with God someday. Unscrupulous politicians, unprincipled parents, dishonest auto mechanics, crooked business executives, high school bullies, corrupt clergy, and scam artists who mercilessly prey upon senior adults will all face God. Everybody who thinks they're getting away with something will be called to account by the one whose eyes are in every place watching over the good and the evil. God cannot be mocked says Paul. God cannot be fooled. God can't be tricked, hoodwinked, cheated, or scammed. Hidden deceptions will not remain hidden always. Secret schemes will not remain secret always. Vile motives veiled with shiny smiles and slick talk will not remain veiled always. God will hold the irresponsible responsible. God will hold the unaccountable accountable. No one can elude God's righteous judgment. As the old folk song puts it, you may throw your rock and hide your hand working in the dark against your fellow man, but as sure as God made black and white, what's done in the dark will be brought to the light. You can run on for a long time, run on for a long time, run on for a long time, but sooner or later, God will cut you down. Harvest time is coming. I read a story a while back about an offender named Robert Stackowitz who thought he was getting away with something. In 1966, Stakowitz was sentenced to 17 years in a Georgia prison. But just two years into his term, he escaped from the prison's infirmary. Authorities were unable to capture him after his deft getaway, and he was in the wind for a long, long 
time. I don't know how he operated under the radar and evaded law enforcement for so many years, but finally in 2016, U.S. Marshals apprehended Stakowitz in the tiny town of Sherman, Connecticut. He was 71 years old at the time and had been on the run for 48 years. Likewise, we can run and we can hide, but we cannot avoid divine accountability forever. We can reject God's grace, we can reject God's law, and we can reject God's will, but we cannot reject God's judgment. Even we who believe in Christ and are saved by divine grace are not excused from divine accountability nor exempted from the proceedings on judgment day. All will appear before God's judgment seat, says the scripture. It's important to understand that God's judgment is an outgrowth of God's love. Since God loves all people so very much, God cares deeply about making things right. The legal infrastructures of this present age have flaws and the criminal justice systems of this present world have defects. But when God pounds the gavel, everything will be set right again. Justice will be complete and we will reap whatever we have sown. Harvest time is coming. If we have sown to the flesh, we will reap the corruption of the flesh. To sow to the flesh is to unrepentantly, unremorsefully, unrelentingly practice sinful works of the flesh, such as those listed in Galatians 5, impurity, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, and more. Whoever sows to the flesh, says Paul, will reap corruption. The Greek term there indicates decay and death. But thankfully, oh thankfully, we can spend our time sowing in an altogether different field. Namely, we can sow to the Spirit. To sow to the Spirit means to rely on the Spirit of God working in us and through us rather than relying on human works of the law. It means to bear the fruit of the Spirit listed in Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. When we sow to the Spirit, we reap eternal life. Eternal life for Paul means that Christians who die will have a resurrected body in the end. The resurrected body rising from the grave is the ultimate harvest of the Spirit. Just as the Spirit raised Christ from the dead, the Spirit will likewise raise believers from death 
to everlasting life. The Spirit will raise believers from the ground of the grave up to everlasting life. Harvest time is coming. Notice there are only two choices here. Moses set forth two choices in Deuteronomy 30. Death or life. Joshua set forth two choices in Joshua 24. Serve other gods or serve the Lord. The psalmist set forth two choices in Psalm 1. The way of the wicked or the way of the righteous. Jesus set forth two choices in Matthew 7. The broad road to destruction or the narrow road to life. And so Paul sets forth two choices in Galatians 6. You can sow to the flesh or you can sow to the Spirit. It reminds me of a story I heard some years ago. There was a man who felt spiritually and morally torn. He said, it feels like I have two dogs fighting inside of me. One of them makes me do evil and the other makes me do good. Well, which one is winning, somebody asked. The man replied, whichever one I feed. Likewise, we can sow to the flesh and reap a harvest of corruption, decay, and death. Or we can sow to the spirit and reap a harvest of love, joy, peace, and eternal life. The choice is ours and the choice is vital because harvest time is coming. Of course, there's still a great deal of work to be done before the ultimate reaping takes place. Bible scholar John William McGorman writes, between planting and reaping, there is a time of rigorous toil in which many obstacles are to be overcome. Indeed, the intermediate period demands dogged persistence and demanding work. Which is why Paul adds, let us not grow weary in doing what is right, for we will reap at harvest time if we do not give up. He says something similar in 2 Thessalonians 3, never tire in doing what is good. Paul encourages us to do good work, tireless work, unyielding work, much like a farmer exerting steadfast labor in the fields because a harvest time is coming. Since the Reformation of the 16th century, Protestant Christians have often de-emphasized good works because we believe in justification by faith and we believe in salvation by God's grace. But Paul taught justification by faith and salvation by God's grace and also urged Christians to work unrelentingly for the common good. For Paul, we are justified by faith, yes, a faith that expresses itself in love and good deeds. 
For Paul, we are saved by God's grace. Yes, and part of God's grace is the Holy Spirit coming into our lives to produce love, joy, peace, patience, and kindness. Even the great reformer Martin Luther once said, If such works do not follow faith, it is a sure sign that their faith is no true faith. Since our good works result from God's gift of grace and the Holy Spirit working in us, they are no cause for spiritual or moral pride, nor do they represent earning salvation. Paul never suggested that we achieve our own salvation by doing good deeds, but neither did he de-emphasize doing good deeds in order to guard the doctrine of justification by faith from potential misunderstanding. (laughs) To the contrary, he told us to do as much good as we possibly can. He exhorted us to work in the field of the Spirit, to not grow weary in doing what is right, because harvest time... Is coming. And who is our labor to benefit? Who are we to do good works on behalf of? Whenever we have an opportunity, says Paul, let us work for the good of all, and especially for those of the family of faith. One way to understand this verse is that as long as we have life and breath, we are to do good works toward all people and especially fellow Christians. However, Paul uses the Greek term kairos here, which signals an appointed time or a God-given opportunity. So a more nuanced way to understand the verse is that we are to do good works for all people by responding to specific opportunities God gives us. After all, the Christian cannot be an effective champion of every good cause, but we may have opportunities to work for the common good in this way or that, depending on our geographical placement, our social location, our network of connections, our occupation, our expertise, our spiritual gifts, and the timing of events unfolding and converging throughout the course of our life. In short, God's hand of providence often presents us with particular opportunities to work for the common good. One might have an opportunity to aid victims of domestic violence, while another has an opportunity to foster a child. One might have opportunity to curtail malaria, while another has opportunity to support persons with special needs. One might have opportunity to combat world hunger, while another has opportunity to work for ecological justice. One might have opportunity to support rural coal miners, while another has opportunity to help the urban homeless. One might have opportunity to serve senior adults, while another has opportunity to bless teenagers. I'm not undermining the importance of assertively making our own opportunities, 
Nor am I suggesting that we just sit around until the perfect chance to help someone falls right into our lap. My point, rather, is that a single individual cannot effectively support every good cause because there are too many good causes important to the common good. Yet the body of Christ as a whole can make a profound impact for the common good when each member of it makes the most of every opportunity God presents us to do good. All of this is vital because harvest time is coming. Even as Paul emphasizes the importance of doing good for fellow Christians in the household of faith, he does not limit Christian work to serving the church. He sees all creation as the arena for Christian action. The home, the school, the office, the city, the countryside, the nation, the continent, the planet, even outer space, I suppose, are all appropriate venues for Christians to do good. We are called to do all kinds of good in all kinds of places, in all kinds of ways, to all kinds of people, at all the times God gives us, and to not grow weary in doing what is right. I read a story recently about a woman named Frida Janes. Miss Janes was a school teacher for many years during the 20th century. She and her husband had four children that they raised together. Miss Janes retired from teaching school in 1968, and her husband passed in 1970 after 36 years of marriage. As a Christian, Miss Janes trusted in the Lord, was involved in the church, and she volunteered at Haywood Christian Ministry. Miss Jane served on the administrative board of Haywood Christian Ministry until she was a hundred years old. What is more, she continued volunteering weekly at Haywood Christian Ministry until she was a hundred and three. She worked in the pantry sorting the foods since she had become legally Blind in her older age, other volunteers at the ministry bought her a magnifying glass with a light on it so she could read the labels on the food and sort the products properly so that people in the community that were food insecure could come and get nourishment in the name of Christ. Miss Janes did not grow weary in doing what is right, but was busy doing good to all well past a hundred years of age. Likewise, church, let us not grow weary in doing good. And let us not let our love grow cold. Let us do good to fellow Christians. And let us do good to non Christians. Let us do good to friends and let us do good to strangers. Let us do good to family and let us do good 
to co-workers. Let us do good to students. And let us do good to teachers. Let us do good to athletes. And let us do good to academics. Let us do good to the healthy. And let us do good to the sick. Let us do good to the destitute. And let us do good to the wealthy. Let us do good to introverts. And let us do good to extroverts. Let us do good to the single. And let us do good to the married. Let us do good to the northerners. And let us do good to the southerners. Let us do good to the young. And let us do good to the old. Let us do good to Jews. And let us do good to Muslims. Let us do good to Democrats. And let us do good to Republicans. Let us do good to those who are sad. And let us do good to those who are happy. Let us do good to those who are powerful. And let us do good to those who are vulnerable. Let us do all the good we can to all the people we can, in all the ways we can, at all the times God gives us. For as we work in the field of the Spirit, we will someday reap an unparalleled crop. We will someday reap an incomparable yield. We will someday reap the divine gift of everlasting life through Jesus Christ our Savior. Because harvest time is coming. <laughs> Harvest time is coming. Amen.